Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. <laughs> Another beautiful day on the Victor Bravo Golf Course. The sun is shining, the birds are about, and there's a sudden buzz in the crowd. Michael Michelson steps up to the tee box. 15th hole here, drivers recommended. <laughs> oh, is he a caveman? Because he suddenly clubbed that one. What do you reckon, George? <laughs> I mean, did he hit that with a dictionary? Because that was a terrible read. <laughs> G'day and welcome. Oh. This is golf. Andrew Dado is my name. Great to have you with golf. me. Um, a little while ago, we had Bruce Green, the longtime head professional at Royal Melbourne, on the show talking about the life of Bruce Green. So this is literally a life, a full, full life in golf. He walked into Royal Melbourne as a 13-year-old in short pants, made some pocket money as a caddy, um, and he's pretty much still there. He is the figurehead um, in the pro shop. He's not actually the head pro anymore, but he is most definitely teaching there. So last time we talked about him and his career, and no doubt there will be talk about Bruce and Bruce's career again today, but we're talking about Royal Melbourne, the history of Royal Melbourne Golf Club, what makes it so good and so special, where did it come from, how was it made, um, what's the theory behind it, what is the iconology of the course and the clubhouse and the members, it's just a brilliant chat, a brilliant um opportunity to talk to one of the great minds holding the knowledge of Royal Melbourne Golf Club. And this is without question Australia's best. So sit tight, buckle up. Here's Bruce Green talking about Royal Melbourne Golf Club, the history and oh near the end you might well get the best bunker playing tip you've ever had. Gene Sarazen said, It burns me up that with the billions of dollars spent on course construction in the past 50 years, all the architects together haven't been able to build another Royal Melbourne. What is it about Royal Melbourne that makes it so great before we get into the history? Well, I've been asked that question hundreds of times. My feeling is that in so many ways, nature built the course. Um, the land, the land, every golf course designer in the world would like to put their hands on land like Royal Melbourne. And the forefathers made a great decision when they moved from Sandringham across to the current site in Black Rock, only just around the corner. But the uh, the undulation, 
the course was built by uh, an old Clydesdale and a plough. It wasn't built by tractors and trucks. And what they did is they moved the sand. They took the sand out of bunkers and they built a green. And on tees, you can see at the back of the tees, some places here, they took the sand from in the trees and built a tee. So they never moved anything. looked to me like more than about 50 metres. So okay. um, if you look at it, the, the, the whole, uh, you can play Royal Melbourne back to front, side, whatever you like, and it's still a great course. So, so with the changes that are made and that haven't, have been made since Mackenzie got his hands on it and, and made it what it is, when you look at those changes, do you, um, and over the years, are you excited by potential changes? Do you question the changes? Um, no, I, I guess I'm on the old camp. Um, and, and right as we speak now, uh, the club is going back to some of the old design. Changes were made sometimes because of big tournaments and mounds were put in. Um, there were entries to bunkers. But outside of that, the golf course is the same as it was 100-plus years ago. But yeah. uh, we did put in some walk-ins to try and make it look easy, but it, it changed the look. Um, and at the moment, we have a, one of our chairman of our Greens committee is very, very keen uh, to look at where Royal Melbourne was all those years ago and what has been done since and whether it was good or bad. So we have gone back in some areas and uh, those those changes look quite good. So, so what's the process like for you as the pro? And as I say, you know, over 50 years at Royal Melbourne, when you have a different Greens committee every, what, every three or four years, do you go through? And so then you've got a new champion looking to build their, you know, their pyramid or their whatever. How, how difficult is, is the management of change within the club? Well, it is, it is difficult because, uh, as you know, it's a worldwide reputation. It's one of the great courses of the world, uh, regarded as the best course in, in Australia, the West Course and the East Course is not far behind. So any change at all is always going to be difficult. And I, I always say to people, you know, if you look at um, some of the, the great old pictures of years gone by um, and you look and you think, I don't know what people see in it, but you're never going to change it. Um, mm. And the same thing with Royal Melbourne. Royal Melbourne is, is very playable for the members. Jack Nicholas once said it's a wonderful members course. Uh, it's also a great course for tournaments, but you missed out on that. Um, but it is. It's, it's, there's people out there playing right now this morning and they love every little inch of that golf course. So, you know, we've got to be very, very careful. Any yeah. change, any adjustment, we're not going to change Royal Melbourne. We might, we might take something in that uh, take something out that was put in um, yeah. well after Mackenzie had gone for the great sky, course in the sky. So, yeah. you know, it's important for us to um, maintain the history of the club. The reason why Royal Melbourne is regarded so much as Royal Melbourne, <coughs> excuse me, is not all about the course. It's about the uh, mystery of the club, the mystique of the club, um, the people who are members there, you know, in so many ways they're regarded. They're successful people in their life. They've succeeded and they find their way to Royal Melbourne and uh, they link up with others that have been the same. So the, the, it's not just Royal Melbourne great golf course. You know, it's very much... Uh, the way the members protect the club, they're very protective of any change. They're protective of their image. Um, they don't go out and, and blast the image all over the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's why it, it, it has that, you know, a lot of people have never been set foot on Royal Melbourne. I've set my foot on Royal Melbourne almost every day for 50 years more. 
yeah. 60 years. Um, so I know, I know the history. I know the way the people have looked after the club. And that's why Royal Melbourne is what it is today. Otherwise, you know, you only need people to come in, people who like change, and they can make a hell of a difference to the place very, very quickly and take away something that's been protected for well over 100 years. Yeah, there's a definite <laughs> fantasy aspect to it and that when you do yeah. get to play it. And I had a mate who was a member, so we got to play there when we were kids and it was – and yeah. we never really – we never understood – we, know, you know, we, yeah, we knew it was special. It was. We, we didn't understand what it was. And then right. so now I look back and go, oh, if I could have that time again, um, well, it would be. So well, it's significant. People, and Yeah. When people drive into Royal Melbourne, on the right-hand side of the driveway is an old plough. And I can't tell you how many people said to me, why did they put an old plough on the driveway of Royal Melbourne? <laughs> you know, this the plough. That yeah. was the plough that built Royal Melbourne Golf Club. Now, you had right. to have, you know, people like Malcolm McKenzie um, who oversaw it all and built the courses. Someone had to build it. But those old Clydesdale horses, um, which was kept, they were kept in a place called the Horse Paddock, where the dams are now. And um, the rest is history. It's all, you know, there was, we're so lucky that um, when people, when, when all the houses started to press down from the city, down and people moved down to a place called Black Rock, you know. I mean, that Black Rock was like a seaside almost mm. holiday area. Um, they put pressure on land prices and everything else. So Royal Melbourne was really forced to move from where they were to where they are today. And that was just, that was really so much about the history of the club. Yeah. I, I, well, let's talk about that initial history. I was reading that um, it started as, as the Melbourne, it was the Melbourne Golf Club and then the Melbourne Golf Club split into what became Metropolitan Golf Club That's and right. Royal Melbourne Golf Club. Yeah. So um, was that was that an acrimonious split, or was it a like? Yeah, did history, it... history doesn't tell us that the, that they had a nasty fallout because Royal Melbourne and Metropolitan would be considered brother and sister right now. Right. Um, they're very close. They play uh, exchange matches, um, and the memberships are very very similar. So. Royal Melbourne has an enormous amount in common with Metro and vice versa. I think that, um, you know, the pressure again was on Royal Melbourne when they were in Melbourne um, to move down to Sandringham. So, you know, the, the sort of history will tell us that they were almost forced to move. Um, hopefully that will never, ever happen again. But, um, you know, that's the reason why <laughs> some, some probably didn't want to move to Black Rock and some yeah. didn't want to go to Metropolitan in, in Oakley. I mean, I can't imagine it could ever happen that Royal Melbourne would be forced to move because there's literally there's nowhere no, to move to except exactly down the Mornington right. Peninsula. Well, that was the in in the history. I think it says that you know when when the talk was to move from Sandringham, there was actually talk of buying the what they call the Millionaires Club, which is Little Frankston, and that's where a lot of the wealthy people had their holidays down in um, Frankston, South Frankston, in that area. And on the beach at uh, Frankston, uh, so there was there was a consideration to uh, look at buying uh, the, the little Frankston or the Millionaires Club, as they call it today. Mm. Um, but that never eventuated. Thank God. Yeah, it seems like there is some movement. I know within uh, the the national, they you know they look at other clubs and think you know can we expand and make our and get it bigger. Anyway, we're not talking about them. We're talking about Royal. We're talking about Royal Melbourne. Yeah, they'll never um, get their hands on Royal Melbourne. They might find. Well, uh, they might get the capital or somewhere like that. Yeah. Um, so it's Mackenzie's course. 
but his stay in Australia was relatively brief, wasn't it? So yes, correct. He he left the. Well, tell me what happened. I know, I know, Alex Russell was involved. He was an Australian Open champion, On the East um, and and Mick Morecambe. So yeah. tell Mick tell Morecambe us the story. Brother, so, um, they were involved in quite a few courses. Um, I think the brother might have done more of Kingston Heath, um, but uh, Morecambe definitely at Royal Melbourne, and uh, he had a lot to do with the building of the West Course in particular. Probably that. That's it. Mm. Okay. So he and- was uh, Mackenzie was the man who designed courses. He was a um, uh, whatever he was in the when he was in the army. Uh, he he would um, he was the master of disguise, really, and that's how oh. he built a lot of the courses. Was that you know you play courses um, and you, you look back and you think where are the bunkers? We just saw a lot of them. They weren't there. So, you know, like uh, Cypress Point in particular. So, you know, he he, uh, had a great uh, eye uh, for the golf courses and that probably followed on from his time during the war. Okay. So, I mean, and that is one of the... See, now I want to go back again and yep. look backwards down a fair way. should have read up the notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Did Mackenzie do the? Did, he did the plans. Like, are there? Do you have the original plans of what he drew? The the, the <laughs> architect drawings, as it were. Yeah, there are some drawings in in the archives. Um, yeah, but um, I'm not too sure exactly how many. Uh, I've seen some, but you know, there's pictures of the routing of the old course, but uh, I wouldn't um, sit here and say that I've seen them all. No. Right. So, was it a case then, maybe, that what he said was that well, let's have this hole go this way and turn a bit here and was it was it yeah. that simple and Fair and then well, that was interpreted it sound it was probably pretty difficult you know cutting through a, a, you know they didn't have helicopters so they had to walk their way through thick trees tea tree and so forth um the same at cypress point you know he went there and he the course superintendent who was there uh he kind of oversee it but coming out here and and the courses that he worked on out here, he didn't have that much time. You know, it took a long time to get here and get back. So mm. he was here for only short periods of time, but he certainly left his imprint because, you know, if you've been to a McKenzie course anywhere in the world, you can look and say, yep, that's a McKenzie course. So very much the um, the shaping of the greens, the walk-ins on the bunkers, they were the main features and, uh, you know, the the the, the the little peaks in the greens, all the subtleties, the rolls, um, you know, it's a real master's work and, and Morecambe, there's no question, not, no, none of us know exactly how much he did on that, but we knew he was overseeing it, so he, he had a lot to do with it. Okay, and how important then was the the, the, constru- the construction of the course in, turn, in being able to make it? So here's the vision. How, how hard was it to achieve that vision? Well, if you can imagine, there were no bulldozers and scoops. So yeah. that old plough that's on the uh, the drive-in and the and the horses, the, the person who managed the ploughs and the horses had a lot to do with the shaping of Royal Melbourne. And you can you can come round with me anytime and I'll show you, you know, where they've taken dirt from in the trees there and they've built this and they built, yeah, say, for instance, the um, most of the landscape is still the same. So if you look at the... Fifth of the West or the seventh of the West, you can see the natural landscape, and then you can say, "Well, they must have dug a lot of dirt out of there and just lifted it and put it over and built a green there." The thing in, in 
that was in their favour in those days, there was no hurry. You could take 10 years to build a golf course. Nowadays, a developer wants it built in a year and a half. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it, the artist form is there. And I, I played Pine Valley in, in America, and that is probably regarded as the world's number one, debatable. Um, and you can just see it's the same thing. It took years and years to build that golf course. So okay. they had an opportunity to really, every hole was built to their near perfection. Yeah, I think we've all seen um, Royal Melbourne on their telly, but we haven't all seen it in person. So just describe, if you can, the, you know, what is um, what is particular about the the walk into the the walk into the bunkers and things like that that make it an Alistair McKenzie signature. Yeah, well, quite a lot of bunkers when you walk in, you just walk in from the side of a bunker. But um, the classic courses, you can actually walk to the edge of the bunker and then you'll take a walk in that could be three or four metres long and it comes down on an angle because, you know, the bunkers at Royal Melbourne don't run straight off the fairway. You get to the edge of the bunker and then it's down, say, three or four or five metres, six metres. So there's some pretty deep bunkers. Um, so to get in and out, they had to build these walk-ins and they had to fit with the eye when you're playing to the green or playing to the fairway and they fit beautifully to the eye. They, they make it. If you took all the walkouts, walk-ins out, then you might find it's a very, very different looking Royal Melbourne. Okay, and it's and for the greens as well. You talk about you know, the, the greens, the... the shaping of the greens. We have one green on the west course that is semi-flat, and the rest have all got beautiful. They're not they're not that severe. The sixth of the west is the most severe, but it's still a wonderful green and regarded outside of Lee Trevino's comments when he played on it. He, he uh, when he walked <laughs> off, he said to two old members that were there. Um, with all due respect, they were sitting there with their coat and their tie and no, neither of them had any hair. And the, and the <laughs> Lee said to them, hey, you guys have to be members here. And the, the guy said, uh, why do you think, why do you know that, Lee? He said, because you, your blogs ain't got any hair left playing on these bloody greens. <laughs> <laughs> and that sums up Sixth of the West because a very difficult uh, green to play with. You know, you can putt way up to the top to get down near the hole at the bottom. So, yeah, is there is is part of the, so and and this is a question for you personally as well. Is part of the fun of and part of the the challenge of golf to to not have easy access to the hole all the time? I mean, and and was that the theory originally? Well, Mackenzie was always um, promoting a good fair challenge. You, you've got to provide a challenge. You know, if you make it too easy, no one wants to play it. If you make it too hard, no one wants to play it. So somewhere in between, there's got to be the subtleties. There's got to be the um, degree of difficulty that keeps you on your guard. Um, so there's a mixture, you know, to design a good golf course. You know, you, you want a golf course that people walk away and see that was fantastic, right? You walk away yeah. from golf courses like that um, and you can remember the holes. It means you love the holes. So uh, I, to me, that's what I like to think is that, you know, I look at some golf course and I think, mm, you know, doesn't do much for me. And then I'll go to another one. I'll go, just love playing that. That's just fantastic, you know, because the challenge is there, a lot of fairness, um, but it, it just tests you. And, you know, when you stand there and try and hit a green and you've got to think instead of just hitting to a wide expanse, you know, that's part of what golf's all about. Yeah, but isn't that the thing of golf as well? I mean, that bit of thinking that we should be doing that any, like regardless of where we play or how we play, we should be Absolutely. looking at a green going, Absolutely. we should be... It's, it's, it it's how it makes you think and, and how the challenge is. I mean, if it's too hard, 
there are certain courses, I'm not going to name them here, but there are certain courses people don't want to play because they're too hard, right? And, yeah. so, and vice versa. So the challenge is, is to build a golf course that's fun. The whole thing about golf, the overriding thing about golf, it's got to be fun. If golf's not fun, people don't want to play. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's what you do with your swing. It's the clubs you use. It's uh, the camaraderie in the bar. You know, everything about a golf club relates to fun because that's what draws you to the place. It doesn't draw you because it's so damn hard that you feel like you don't want to go. You want to go there and say, right, I conquered today. <laughs> but you want to go there the next time and say, geez, I don't know how I conquered the last time I was there. Yes. And so as a professional golfer of some ilk yourself, you know, to, to well, not divide and conquer, but certainly to to prevail, um, how good are the prevailing moments at, at Royal Melbourne, for instance, well, as opposed to the ones where they absolutely built you? I, I played in a comp there one day and I had 63 on the West Course. Um, yeah. That was more of a social comp and everyone was betting $5 and I said, well, I'm off scratch. There's no point. I might as well give everyone five bucks now. And so I didn't have a bet. I went out and shot 63 um, yeah. and I would have won, except for one guy, I would have won off everybody. So... You know, when when you when you achieve something at Royal Melbourne, there is a there is a really good feel about it. You know, and if you played in all the big tournaments, Royal, the Australian Opens, the PGA's, the whole lot, and it Royal Melbourne serves it up to you all the time. But it's fair. Yeah, it's fair. You can never say, oh, it's just too hard. They put the pins in the wrong places, or you know, it's just too difficult. <laughs> no, that's the beauty of the golf course. It it it, it enjoys a great fair um, challenge to the golfer are there are there reasonable excuses that you've heard at 50 over 50 years at Royal Melbourne as to why people have played badly I mean you would have heard them all so have you ever heard a a decent one I've heard thousands I've heard (laughs) thousands Um, pin placements (laughs) yeah they don't like it when we they always think the core superintendent's had a bad day right or he's in trouble at home uh, yeah. when, when uh, he puts a pin stuck in behind bunkers. And they don't like that too much. Um, but in the main, you know, there's a million one excuses, right? But the, that's the beauty of golf. You can have all those excuses. You can say my clubs were no good. You could say the wind was too strong. The, the, everything's different. It's never the same. I mean, with all due respects to tennis, when you go and play tennis, the net's the same height. You're playing the same back and forward, back and forward. So tennis is all about... The, the guy on the other end, he's either better than mm. you or you're better than him. So, you know, if you have a win, you feel good. When you go home, winning is a good feeling. Losing is not so good. So Royal Melbourne gives you that uh, across-the-board challenge where you have so many people playing um, and, and they all, they come in and they have a look up on the screen and they go, you know what, beat Andrew Daddo today. Oh, go home and tell the wife about that one. Hmm? Yeah, it wouldn't be hard. Hey, um, Bruce, has the course length changed much over time? Very little, very little. We've lengthened a few just to increase it. We're a bit landlocked, so we're not really in a position, especially the West Course, where we can put too much length at all. In fact, both courses, there's very little room to lengthen it. And the challenge of Royal Melbourne is the conditions and the preparation of the course. That's what Royal Melbourne is about. We can make Royal Melbourne that hard that people will all walk off. We can make the green that fast that no ball will stop anywhere near 10 feet near the hole except one hole. So right. we, we do we can make it hard, and we have done that, but we didn't get a good reputation out of that. Everyone sort of uh, 
walked away from it and said, you know, that's unfair. So in terms of course preparation over the years, have have there been moments where the fairway, the rough's been growing and and just the rough gets seeded and made thicker? Like do you employ... Let the raft, we let it grow. We're doing it at the moment. So the seeds then drop and increase the thickness of the rough over the next few years. So, yes, we do that. We've got beautiful yep. native rough, which is unique to Royal Melbourne um, and it's unique to the Bayside area. We have you know, egg and bacon plants, we have wedding plants. People come for miles when they're invited um, to see these plants. They're magnificent and, and it's very rare to see them anywhere else in the state. Right. So they're not you don't the, the the roughs aren't artificially seeded to make it no, you know we've got no, okay we we've got the trees in and planted everything came out of the ground that's yeah. again one of the beauties of Royal Melbourne it is so natural uh, where their fairways are guarded by tea tree some people don't like tea tree too much because you get in there you poke your eye out or you can't find the ball <laughs> but but it defines the golf course yeah so tea tree is still important to the golf club uh, yeah I think it's one of the great aspects of the course anyway like it, it's one of the great things about the whole um the sand belt is you, you just sit there and you just get well you get beaten up or you don't get beaten up so that's, that's it's one of the you nice know, things if you're going to kingston heath commonwealth metropolitan well there we go on and on and on all those sand belt courses they're all great courses you know they're yeah. all they're all good fun and they're well uh, with trees and so forth around them they're well guarded so some are quite lengthy which is you know more Less, tre- less trees and uh, more open, exposed to the wind, and others are well trained. <coughs> so, Bruce, um, you, you don't, I mean, look, I'll ask you, you don't have to answer it. When you look at, the, say, the changes that Metropolitan made um, a few years ago and they literally took out hundreds and hundreds of trees so you could look through the golf course and see what people are doing in other holes and you got a better, I believe, a, the point was a better sense of community across the course. Do you look at those sorts of changes and think, that's great or it's crazy it's not, or... It's not what I'd do, but at the time, Metropolitan were keen to get Australian Opens, which most uh, sand belts in particular uh, want to get. Um, mm. And I think they were given the message that they had to toughen it up and they put in some deep fairway bunkers and, you know, they just changed the course quite a bit. Uh, arguably, whether that's right or wrong, history will tell us. Okay. When, when you think about, you know, the governing body of Australian and, you know, and world golf and they say, well, so a golf course wants to get an Australian Open and they say, well, you've got to toughen it up and you've got to change things. Surely in your time in golf, you've seen the the attitudes and the beliefs change. Like, And so there must be times when it's been of great sense of this is the direction golf should be going and other times when it's possibly inane what they're suggesting that golf courses do. Yeah. Um, we, I get asked when I do quite a few guest speaking um, times and, and people say, you know, what do you think about, you know, the ball going so far and what about the big head on the driver and, and the ball is such a, a powerful little piece of uh, plastic at the moment. Um, my feeling with, with golf courses is that golf courses are there for the members quite clearly, okay? Yeah. Uh, and the guests of the golf club. We have interstate, we have overseas, and we have members bringing guests. So the golf course is there for the members. Now, if that is always number one priority, then that's the way it's got to be. 
You know, they, if they want lobster, if they all vote to have lobster on a Sunday lunch, mm. <laughs> you know, that's what it's going to be. So yeah. you know, you've got to satisfy your members, but the golf course is clearly there for the members, uh, clearly. It's not, it's not, if you dictate it from outside uh, to try and get your reputation up, that's dangerous. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You talked earlier about the mystique of the membership and and i understand that when royal first started golf was sort of a side project and it was the bar and the cards and the clubhouse was was more of the interest is that right that's absolutely when i was there as a young boy you know i walked through the front gate there when i was 13 and i'm now 73 going on 74 so you know i've, I've had a good look at the golf club um over all those years um from within and mm. in the old days, it wasn't about tournaments, members, competitions. That didn't mean anything. In fact, you know, if you won competitions or you tried hard to win them, you're called a pot hunter. So, <laughs> you know, that's, um, yeah, my grandfather would say that a lot. <coughs> yeah, that's how it was. The, the, the whole thing was about going there, getting away, having a break from work and having a break from family. So yeah. they would go there on the Saturday. And then they'd stay on and they'd drink and play cards and they cooked them a meal and they'd sleep there way back. And then they'd go home and have lunch with a, you know, a roast lunch and apple pie and ice cream with, with mum or grandma. That's how so when, so when did it sort of, when, when did the golf club change to be more about the course and less about the, I mean, I'm, look, I'm assuming that those, that, that, that the joy in those, in the, the, the love of the game still continues. Yeah, the 80s. See, the, the, in the old days, our members came from um, family introduction, uh, friends, uh, schoolmates. So it yeah. was very much um, from within that area. You know, they came from Turak and Melbourne and all those areas, um, or they were introduced by family friends. Um, yeah. but you could, uh, and, of course, if you had a, had a baby, some of them put the baby down as membership at birth. They'd wait... <laughs> 20 years to get in, like MCC. That was a bit of it in the old days. So it was very much family. Um, then around um, the end of um, 73, around 1973, things got a bit tight. The costs to run the big two courses got, and the rates and everything went up. So the club opened up the membership considerably and they allowed quite a lot of new members who came from some different areas, 
um, that they all they all match in. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, Bruce, what was it? What was it like at the time when, because it was a very, um, as you say, a very closed shop. Yes. So when the shop had to open, when you went from the corner store to uh, a mall, yep. what was it like for the members when the new members, the new people came in? Well, it was it was a really slow transition because they didn't let 10 or 12 or 15 or 20 in at once. It was yep. like four or five. So the older member would sort of uh, talk behind their hand like this and say, yeah, who's that over there? Where, who put him up? Where did he come from? And yeah. it was all. Um, and, you know, they kept to themselves, and, but every now and again they would invite them in. So in the old days you made up your own group. So generally yeah. you all played with your own groups. And then going uh, when I was there in, say, 79, um, I was very much a part of a group that said we need time sheets because everyone had come out of the bar at once, having had lunch, had drinks, and they all wanted to hit off. Well, mm. we've got two courses, but it was still awkward, and no one knew how many people were coming to the club, um, how many might be there for lunch, uh, whereas time sheets, uh, the, the bar staff, the kitchen staff, the pro shop staff, everybody would know around about how many we're going to have, 80 or 100 or 140. So then you could cater for them and you could manage the flow of traffic. Okay. So what was the pushback like when you said, let's have timesheets? Yeah. Yeah. The old school didn't like it. Yeah. I got the blame for that. <laughs> yeah. Bruce, how, how did it work then? Like if you had um, 20 members have just come out of the bar, probably with a couple of reds under the belt and, and, they, all, and they all want to hit off at the same time, how, how did that actually work? Well, we had what we call a ball race, which was a long say, oh, yeah. meter, uh, bit of metal that, that you put the balls in and it was exposed at the top so you could see where your ball and that's where it was. Only problem is we had a couple of members who used to change their ball for somebody else's ball that was a bit better. So they had a similar ball but a new one versus not so new. We had a couple of members used to change the balls over. That didn't go down well. Right. And then would you have like a European a, a European at a, a poolside location go and put their towel down early? Like someone would arrive there for lunch and go and put their ball in and be ready to go as no, soon no. as they were ready? No, no, no. They had to arrive at the tea and then put, and then put the ball in. Otherwise, if they, if they went there for lunch, they might stay for another half an hour and everyone's waiting for the guy to come out of the bar and hit off. No, you had, okay. when you played, you walked over and you put it in the race and now you're ready. That's okay, it. so those are the, those were the rules. Um, so it's interesting. So that was a, it would have been a massive, a massive change for them. How long did it take to to see that it was a good thing? Well, I think some of the old school probably never thought it was a good thing. And <laughs> some of our members today don't think it's a good thing. But yeah, they would like okay. it to be, you know, like sixty people playing today. Well, there'd be two hundred out there today. Um, mm. But, you know, you have to go with change. Time brings change and, and change, you know, the golf club needs revenue as well. That, and, you know, if you pay a lot of money, right, to be a member, mm. then, you know, you want to make sure that, you know, you're going to get your value so you want to play. That's yeah. what happens. You know, people go, oh, I spent a lot of money there. She's oh, oh, darling, I'll, I'll have to go and play today <laughs> because, you know, it costs me a lot of money, you know. And, of course, they yeah. get out of home and go and have a go to golf. Yeah, the, when they the clubhouse was rebuilt, and it was a beautiful, I mean, obviously a much smaller clubhouse, and they built that the 
the big one, which is still a beautiful clubhouse, that must have been a, a really interesting time for the club as well. Well, a few changes, like a lot of clubs have some beautiful old wooden clubhouses, but they don't accommodate the change in membership, the requirements and the size. So, you know, things do change. And um, when we changed the clubhouse firstly, the old clubhouse was a lovely old sort of wooden fibro structure, but had a lot of age to it. And, and of course, in the bar, it's, you know, all the walls were full of cigar smoke or cigarette smoke or you know, a bit of grog. It was the good old days, eh? The good old days, Bruce. I think I'm still living in a bit of that, but <laughs> I, I have come out of it. It's like coming out of the fog. I'm sort of, yeah, yeah. I think I've got out of it. But, you know, yeah. it was lovely. You'd walk in there and they had a big fireplace and the logs on the fire, and there'd be 20, 25 people sitting around the fire drinking and yeah. talking. Great. So you don't get that today. You might get six or eight, or if you're lucky, you've got a fireplace somewhere in a clubhouse. So, yeah, yeah it, it, there's been a big adjustment, um, which it had to be. And, of course, the older members, they, they, they struggle with it. It's not like the old days. Hey, Andrew, it's not like the hey, old well, days. Yeah, um, <laughs> well, Bruce, I'm, I'll be honest. The th- when you talking about, you know, having 20 members standing around an open fire reminds me of being at my grandfather's house and we'd stand there and yeah. burn the tree, the leaves from the elm tree in the street and you'd see other people's fires in the street. You it was bloody great. Yeah, you I know, could, and I it's, could spend five hours doing a podcast with you on the old days. Yeah, we could. On a dairy farm. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you some stories. Yeah. Um, but it's it's the beauty of Royal Melbourne is that and, and why it is so well respected, it's still, it's still got the classic look about the, the entrance. Um, mm. We did a clubhouse and it looked like um, one of the old funeral parlours that had very square walls, square roof and, and the old... Uh, I don't know, creamy sort of dark, creamy, creamy bricks. Mm. Um, it just looked like a funeral. And people used to say it, the funeral part. Well, we got rid of that and uh, we built a brand new clubhouse and it's a classy, very classy clubhouse. Now the, we're digging I, up the whole practice fairway. We're spending millions of dollars as of this week and we're putting all the car park underneath the practice fairway so you won't see cars. When you come to the golf club, you'll think there's no one here. Well, wow. virtually no one, right? Wow. So a massive change, a huge cost, but it's for the future. So what happens to the president and the captain then, Bruce, when they if they can't arrive and, and park their car in the best spot and everyone goes, man, yeah, the captain's here. Yeah. We, don't have, we don't have that at Royal Melbourne. In the oh, old don't days, really? In the old days, the captain could walk out of the bar, having enjoyed refreshments, walk onto the tee with his group and say, gentlemen, I'm taking the captain's privilege and just hit off and everyone stand aside. That was the right. old days. That changed around the 70s, right? Okay. Um, nowadays, we, we don't have such a thing as the captain's car park or the president or the secretary or the club professional. You park where you park. If the captain has to park down the street, that's where he parks. Right. Well, that's it. Well, we haven't caught up with that <laughs> where I'm at. Well, I see um, you must... I just think the, a last the golf course I've seen that um, doesn't recognise the captain, the president, the manager in particular, um, yeah, with a with a car spot. That's the way it is. Okay, a, la- a final architectural question: the old pro shop was a thing of, it was just beautiful, perched there behind the first tee. <laughs> that gla- you know, and so that yep. maybe that is a bit sad that that's gone. 
Well, I, I walked into it yesterday because it's now, you know, we're using it as a temporary because the, a lot of the buildings are coming down around the car parks. We're clearing a lot of buildings, so everything's going oh. underground. So, oh, so the pro shop's going underground? No, no, no. The, the pro shop is, is moving into the old pro shop, which is where mm. I was as head pro. Mm. And then oh, well, that's the good. The old pro shop before that. Um, no, it's moved because um, they need they, they need to take um, all, the, all the clubs and things out of the current pro shop because the whole front of the clubhouse, all the bitumen, everything's coming up. And there's a whole new entrance. Then you go straight wow. underneath the car park underground. So you'll come it's to the amazing. golf club and all you'll see, lovely entrance, a lot of nice plants, flowers, and then you go underground. <laughs> and then just the and then the um, the practice fairway goes back on top. I'm guessing. That's and... correct. That's correct. Wow, wow, exciting, Bruce. Go on, let me ask you a couple of sort of stranger questions. Um, what happens to the old the, the, the what happens to the golf clubs of the members who pass on and their golf clubs remain at the club? Well, there's always a family member who. Um, happens to be around for different reasons and they will come mm. down and uh, they'll pick up the clubs. And okay. That's it. Some of them just say, uh, you know, uh, I won't be back at the golf club or I'm going to hospital and, you know, I won't be back playing golf. So, you know, they'll just hand them on to some of the kids around the club, donate yeah. them to the club, all that sort of stuff. Okay. I, did, I only ask because my first set of – No, no. <laughs> 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 Always. Um, my first set of clubs came from what my grand and so Pop was a member at um, Metro, and my yep. first set of clubs came from the Dead Man's Closet. Yes, they yes, called yes. it. <laughs> I haven't heard that. We might, we might have that and it was funny, and I and I blame my grandfather for this. That um, the sandwich had been ground out with an angle grinder. It was called a yep. howitzer. Yep. And um, so it was highly illegal. But anyway, so I think that was where my idea of tinkering first came from because I, the very first sandwich, it was well, a hand ground. You might see that in that interview I did with Richard Allen because my old boss used to grind the front of the uh, of the sand on. You could shave with it. You cut your finger on it. It was that sharp. And yeah. then when the reps used to come in with the new uh, uncut ball, he'd, he'd say to me, come on, Bruce, we'll go up the 7th and West. He used to push the ball halfway into the ground and he just sheared the top of it like cutting an egg for breakfast, right? It's sharp yeah. into the sand and we go straight through it. And the guy just walk away. You tell me that's non-cut? That's not non-cut, all right. Oh, my God. <laughs> Is it um, – what with with home um, manipulation of – golf clubs, is there anything that's actually a good idea? Sorry, I'm missing you a little bit there, Andrew. Sorry. I said with the home manipulation of golf clubs. Yeah, yeah. So the sharpening the sand wedge or something. Yeah. Uh, is there, are there any good ideas? That, that... No, no. <laughs> Give it to the expert. There must be one. People try and yeah. then go and buy a new club, right? Yeah. No, no, no. It's a, uh, uh, unless you're an engineer by trade, you might be able to improve it, but I'll tell you, no, wouldn't do it. Okay. What about it? I'm, I'm trying a homemade wooden putter at the moment. It seems to be going quite well. Mm-hmm. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> well, I digress. That too. <laughs> Bruce, um, uh, just look, before we go, uh, you are a master sand player. Yeah. The, the, the One of the great things about the – 
sand belt and Royal in particular is the bunkers, the sanders. It's beautiful to play from. Um, what is there a secret to sand wedge play that you can, I mean, that you can share with us? Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the biggest problems with people trying to get out of a bunker is the fact that they're trying to get out of a bunker. And that means that in the back of their mind, subconsciously, the first thing they're going to do is want to lift the ball. The first thing you do when you walk into a bunker is you look at the sand and you say, what part of the sand do I want to hit? And you make sure that you lift the club fairly sharp away from the ball. And if that sharp edge comes down into the sand behind the ball and you put sand on the green, then you've got a decent method. So you don't put the ball on the green, you put the sand on the green and the ball happens to go with it. The other thing is if you've got tight hands, if you grip tightly in a bunker, it'll never work. Your hands okay. have to be like you're holding a baby bird, really soft, just touch your fingers, soft as you can so that the club has an opportunity to get down and underneath the ball. Okay. What about if you have a um, fried egg? A Same fried thing? Egg, fried egg. You look at the dirt behind the ball, turn your club face slightly in, lift the club sharply, and whatever you do, do not try and follow through. All you do is hit down as hard as you can and hope for the best. Oh, okay. And if you're religious, so the trick is... if you're religious just say a little prayer, all right? <laughs> Is there, <laughs> is there a god of is so I'm sure you've joked about it. Is there a god of golf? You know, go the great god Spalding. Is there a like? Do you have a? Sorry, I missed that last bit. I said, is there a god of golf that you've you've prayed to, like a the great god Spalding or something? Or well, if there is, I've never found him. Right. right. The only time I yeah. found him was in the Australian PGA in 1979. When I walked off the um, sixth of the West Green and the seagull left a dropping on me and it, it came from my hat down down my shirt and people were laughing at me and I birdied two of the next four, right? Right. So there's something in that, right? If, if a bird drops something on your head on a golf course, use it psychologically to an advantage. Right. So next time I'm playing and I go hanging around under the trees and they go, what are you doing? I'm just I'm just waiting for a bird to poop. Yeah, that's it. Just take it. Just take it and get on with it. Right. I think that's a great uh, that's a great idea for golf as well, Bruce. Just take it and get on with it. And that's Correct. a sort of C as well. Hey, um, Bruce, thanks very much for your time. I love talking to you. Pleasure, You've got Andrew, so much to share. Anytime. Anytime. We haven't run out of stories. There's plenty left. I know I'm not worried about running out of stories <laughs> at all. So good fun. Um, thanks. And it's good to see you. Well, how are you? Are you still playing and how are you playing? Yes, yeah. I'm going to have a hit tomorrow. Yeah. I, I yep. sort of took a break for a while, but I've been to gym and I've been uh, working out at Keezer and, and I've got all my strength back. I feel quite strong and I'm yep. looking forward to getting out and beating my grandson. Okay. And I spoke to Ross Perrett the other day who said he's doing work with you um, and he loves it. Yep. That's so, it. Yep. Well, he's not the easiest one I've ever taught, but uh, I like a challenge. Yeah. Um, yeah I'm still coaching. Uh, if anyone wants a lesson, I'm there. Okay. Nearly everyone, nearly all of the older golfers that I speak to, so I spoke to Pete Croker the other day, and yeah. your name comes up every single time. Oh, so yeah. you're... Must have left your, <laughs> your, your life in golf is omnipresent, and I want to thank you for your generosity. Thank you, Andrew. There he is, Bruce Green, just a gentleman, a gentleman, a gentleman, 
um, still doing amazing things in the game of golf. And you heard him mention there that, you know, working with Ross Perrett, who's himself coming back from a stroke and um, one arm down, but one arm still working. So it was just a real pleasure. And he has said, Bruce, that he'll come back again and we'll think of something else to talk about. So I look forward to that. Hey, thanks for your company. Uh, If you're enjoying it, give us a rating or a review or however it works. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.